We're going to pray, and then we're going to get into our text again. Lord Jesus, as we open your word, we ask through your Holy Spirit to help us to rightly understand what you have revealed there, so that we may believe correctly in sound doctrine, and also through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance in our life, with love towards others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been working our way through the book of Ezekiel. Last week, I did a little bit of an excursus that began the previous week, where we looked at the curses clauses of the Mosaic Covenant in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, all of that was to basically note that God here in Ezekiel 5, in his threatening of punishments and judgment against Jerusalem, is in fact invoking the same curses clauses from Deuteronomy that, you know, that were written just specifically for that purpose. And we also noted then when you put the curses clauses back into their historical context and the fact that Israel had lost its own ability to be its own nation yet again just before really the, uh, the, uh, the incarnation of Christ, that invoked one of the, the, the clauses of the Mosaic Covenant's curses related to the, uh, the nation from far away, like an eagle who would swoop down, a nation who would not spare young or old, and things like this. Uh, so when the New Testament opens, a proper understanding is that, the, uh, that Israel had yet again sinned against God, and God had then put them under the control of a different nation to punish them for their idolatry. But in this particular case, it wasn't the idolatry of of, of worship of, of Molech or of Baal or Asherah. Instead, it was the idolatry of the counterfeit chameleon-like religion of the Pharisees, which is not biblical Judaism. And so it follows that pattern that we see not only in Deuteronomy uh, in 28 with the invoking of the curse clauses of the Mosaic Covenant, it also follows the same pattern of the book of Judges that they sinned, God sold them into slavery to a different nation, and then God sends a savior. So you'll note that that pattern then is in play with the birth of Christ, because Christ is the savior, the one who God sends to redeem Israel. In this particular case, though, genetic Israel, only a remnant are going to believe in Christ as the Messiah, and then the rest have their hearts hardened for their unbelief, and then God eventually executes the final curse clauses of the Mosaic Covenant and scrapes them out of the land of Israel, legitimately just brings them completely out altogether, which is exactly what he threatened to do. I think I should probably look at those last bits of the curse clauses of, of Deuteronomy just so that we're, we're 100% clear as to what our context here is as we're getting to this portion of Ezekiel 5. Um, so again, Deuteronomy 28, 36, Yahweh will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. This is taking place at the time of Ezekiel. This is the, uh, the Babylonian captivity. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where Yahweh will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little. The locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. 
You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. A little bit of a note here. Um, when you look at the cross-references to 1 Corinthians 14, where the gift of tongues is most explained in all of Scripture. There's no other passage of Scripture than 1 Corinthians 14 that explains tongues and its proper use. We learn from the cross-references there that Paul is invoking that in the book of Isaiah, the gift of tongues was one of these signs also that was a sign and wonder against unbelieving Israel. And it, this is why it says in 1 Corinthians 14 that tongues are not a sign for believers but for unbelievers and specifically unbelieving Jews. The whole purpose of tongues was basically through the prophet Isaiah, God had said to unbelieving stiff-necked Israel that, that, that he was going to have the gospel spoken to them by people of strange tongues, and even then they would not believe. And so that was the actual purpose of tongues. It was a negative sign against unbelieving Jews that, of, that God was going to basically judge them for their unbelief. And so, you know, that, if that's the purpose of tongues, and it is, it was never really intended to be a gift for the edifying of the church instead of a sign against unbelievers. That You can see why the Apostle Paul says that if, you, if somebody speaks in a tongue in church, they're one or at the most, you know, two or three at the most, and they're one at a time, and somebody has to interpret. Otherwise, there's no point of tongue speaking because nobody's being edified, and its primary purpose to begin with was the purpose of God having it as a sign of judgment because of all the nations and all the peoples and races on planet Earth back in the ancient world, the Jews were the only ones who would have rightly understood where languages came from in the first place. And I do note that this is kind of a fascinating thing, and that is, is that scientists today who believe in evolutionary theory, they're at a loss to explain why we have language at all, or how it came to be that we have, literally in human history, all of these different languages basically coming, uh, coming into fruition, full bloom, all at the same time in human history. It's kind of a fascinating thing. They don't have any explanation for it at all, and you read your Bible and go, well, I know where language came from. God was upset because human beings were being disobedient, so they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't scatter. So God forced them to scatter by making it impossible for them to uh, understand each other. Right? We, we know where this all came from. But back in the day, the Jews would have been the only ones with the correct information on that. And so when you see an undoing of, the, of, of God's punishment of, of the Tower of Babel, then you know the Jews would see that as a sign, and, and indeed it was, but Isaiah 28 gives us that. So here you're going to note that the difficulties that they are going through that are threatened in the Mosaic Covenant, these then are a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve Yahweh your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom Yahweh will send against you in hunger and in thirst and nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. 
And I would note this. Have you noticed throughout human history, the Jews have just never seemed to get a break? It's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and a lot of Americans do not actually know this fact about uh, European history, that until the mid-1800s, Jews were actually separated from, uh, from uh, European society. They lived in ghettos, and they were not per permitted to participate in government. And so there was actual reforms that took place in the middle part of the 1800s, which then permitted Jews to actually participate fully in society in Europe. And so the best way to think about it is if you go back in American history to our segregation laws that we had uh, prior to the civil rights movement, that uh, the way we treated uh, African Americans was the way that Europeans for centuries, and I mean long, long time, uh, how, they, how they kept themselves separated from the Jews. It's a fascinating study when you actually look at the history behind that. Yes? So I had heard once that part of the reason that there was the hardships with the Jews is that the devil knew that the promised one was coming through that line and trying to destroy it. That's not biblical. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so you're going to note that God... God makes it clear that all of the difficulties that they go through, it's not because the devil said, they're the ones that are the Messiah is coming through. No, all the difficulties that they, went, they were going through is because they're stiff-necked refusal to obey God's commands. And so that's the reason why they, ha they had all these troubles. And I hate to say this, but in the nation of Israel, and you look in the history and the scripture, you kind of have both blessing and curses. When you look at the, the, the history of the kings of Israel, some were bad and some were good, right? And you'll note that in each case where the king was following, following the footsteps of his father David, and that he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, that even if they experienced hardship, God always would like miraculously come through to rescue them. But when they went full whole hog into idolatry, all of that protection was gone. And, and the hardships that came upon them were for the purpose of demonstrating the temporal consequences of sin. And you'll note that we actually have a biblical text that even spells that out for us in the New Testament. I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, but I, I may be wrong. Hang on, I said maybe 3. Hang on. Um, yeah, hang on a second. Let me find this text. Do, 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 do. Oh, I hate the fact that my photographic memory is now getting faded. <laughs> it is a terrible thing getting old. It is just awful. Um, hang on a second here. I've got to find this. Is it 10? Mm, hang on a second here. Example. I know what I'm looking for. Example. I'm looking for the word example, and I'm looking for it in the epistles. And I'm going to find it. Ah, here we go. 1 Corinthians 10. Okay. So, oh, man. 1 Cor 10. Watch what this says. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, fascinating thing that Paul's writing here. Because who's he, which church is he writing to? Church Corinth. Okay. Um, which is a church that is ethnically mixed. 
okay, of Jews and Gentiles. How do we know this? Because in the same letter, we learn that the rich people are keeping the poor people from having the Lord's Supper. So, you know, so you got a mix. You've got Jews and Gentiles both in this thing. And yet, Paul, speaking to all Christians, says that you are, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers. So as Christians, we look in the Old Testament, and that history then, this is the history of our fathers. Even if it's not genetically our history, it is our history in the faith. Our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. That's right, the Red Sea crossing is a type and shadow of baptism. And in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank from the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And I would note, we all eat spiritual food, we had some today, and we all drink from the same spiritual drink, and we drink from the rock, that's Christ, right? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat up to eat and drink and rose up to play. That was the very first Burning Man, by the way. Uh, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Why did I not use this verse on my kids when they were younger? Anyway, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. So you'll note, uh, Corey, the question that you asked then, you know, you've been told in previous churches that the reason why hardship came upon them is because the devil was trying to punish them because he knew the Messiah was coming through them. That's a nice story, but it's not a narrative that's found in Scripture. So the, the, the Jews stand then as an example of both blessing and curses, of those who are blessed by faith and then the obedience that follows faith, as opposed to those who are cursed because of their unbelief and the disobedience that follows unbelief. Notice I'm not talking about obedience and a disobedience in, in like stark naked terms. This is how Nazarenes talk. You, you do the right things, God will bless you. Balagna. Okay, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so we always talk about the obedience that comes from faith. That is the natural fruit of faith, as opposed to just talking about raw obedience. And then disobedience is the direct fruit of unbelief. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the children of Israel stand then as an example to us and note then um, that's to us Christians. Yeah, I, I would think that uh, Andy Stanley might want to pay attention to this, especially on the track that he's been on lately. He's been all over the news for, for all the wrong reasons this past like week and a half. Yeah, he's putting on a conference that basically is gay affirming, you know. And no one's shocked by the you know by the the move, but surprise, surprise, surprise. yeah, <laughs> the Gomer pile. <laughs> I haven't heard that guy in forever. Okay, boy, that takes, takes me back. But all that being said, let's come back then to the text that we were looking at. Um, and this, hang on a second, I'm in, I'm in Ezekiel. Let me go back to Deuteronomy. Okay, so Yahweh will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. This is the promise of the Roman Empire coming and taking over 
the, the, the nation of Israel, a nation whose language you do not understand. A little bit of a note here. Um, if you remember one of Israel's, and I mean Jacob, the guy whose name was changed to Israel, one of his prophecies regarding uh, the Messiah would be that, um, that the scepter would not leave Israel until the Messiah comes. Okay, Fascinating to note this, that even after the Babylonian captivity, that the Jews, although they were a puppet state of the, of the Birds and the Medes and the Persians, they still had the self-governance. And then even under Alexander the Great and after his empire broke into four parts, they still had some self-governance. And, uh, and then uh, even in the early part of the Roman occupation, they did. But when Herod takes over, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod isn't a Jew. He's an Edumean. And so he's the first king or governor of Israel that isn't Jewish. And the church fathers saw that as a fulfillment of the prophecy given by Israel. I think it was at, what is it, 48, 50, some, somewhere in there, like 50, 51, where, where he legitimately says that the scepter would not leave until the, until the Messiah. And that, that's the Roseboro paraphrase of the text, but it's in the book of Genesis. And so the fulfillment of it is that an Edumean is now over Israel and they, they don't have any self-governance at all at this point, and, and they're totally under the rule. And of course, what's funny about um, Herod the Great is that he didn't want people to know that he wasn't a Jew. It's a fascinating bit. He, he kind of tried to keep that under wraps, but it, he was not a Jew. He was an Edumean, something completely different. But the church father saw that as a fulfillment of the prophecy given by Israel. So coming back, yes. Yeah, we're talking about Herod the Great, the guy who killed his own family members and the one who wanted to put Jesus to death. That guy, completely Looney Tunes, okay? Um, and he died of intestinal worms. So horrifying death, too, just absolutely awful. All right. I don't want to know about that. <laughs> okay, thanks. Thanks for not sharing. Okay. Continuing, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or, the, or show mercy to the young, it shall eat the offspring of your cattle, the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds, or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all of your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you in all of your towns throughout your land which Yahweh your God has given you and you shall eat the fruit of your womb. This is the most horrifying bit of all of this. So this is fulfilled in the Roman siege of Jerusalem. And if you've read Josephus or if you have read uh, Eusebius, uh, the, his ecclesiastical history, he quotes extensively from Josephus' uh, Jewish wars to the point where it, it, it's so horrifying. But if you want to do the historical research, there are several accounts of what legitimately happened during the siege, and it's horrifying. It's the best way I can put it. Absolutely horrifying details of like women eating their infants kind of stuff. That's how bad this is. And so note, that's also a sign against them. This is Mosaic Covenant kind of stuff. 
And so you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom Yahweh your God has given you in the siege and in the duress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, the wife he embraces, and to the, uh, to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing left else left. In the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns, the most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender will begrudge to her husband she embraces to her son and to her daughter her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because lacking everything she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. And... The, the, these are the accounts that you find in Josephus's Jewish Wars and in the ecclesiastical history. Important to note that the ancient church documented the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18 and saw it not only as a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, but also of Jesus's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 when he is talking about the siege of Jerusalem and he says, alas, for women who are pregnant in those days. That's an invocation of this portion of Scripture. And Christ is lamenting what is coming because of their unbelief and their obstinance. So he says, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that, you, that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. It, you, you ever been out among briars and stuff like this, and you come out and you got all these burrs like stuck in your socks? and st It's annoying to get that stuff out. That's kind of the picture here. The diseases of Egypt will stick to you like that. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of the law of this law, Yahweh will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh your God. It's not because Satan was trying to destroy the Messiah. It's because they didn't obey. And as Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And Yahweh will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations, you shall find no respite. And there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But Yahweh will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Let me ask you this. Is there any place on planet Earth where the descendants of Abraham today have any respite? No. Not even in Israel. You know, if you don't believe me, just look at the news today and you'll see what I'm talking about. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to me that God has 100% fulfilled this and continues to fulfill it. You know, if you've ever been to Israel, and I haven't, but I've seen a lot of photographs and video coming out of Israel, 
that um, here in the United States, certain states are considered to be a little bit kind of crazy if they allow people to open carry firearms. In Israel, that's standard practice. And it's not just open carry of pistols. They, uh, we're talking open carry of AR-15s and you know, really high-powered weapons and stuff like this. It is not uncommon to see somebody going to pray at the Wailing Wall while slinging an, an AR-15 behind their back. That's common practice. Why? Because no one's leaving them alone. Why? It's a fulfillment of this. So the thing is, is that you can legitimately say that the history that we've seen play out, not only before our lives, but now during our lives, it's still a fulfillment of this passage. Why? These people are in abject rebellion still against God and have not relented of their idolatry and their hatred for Christ. Okay? We continue. Find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but Yahweh will give you there a trembling heart, failing eyes, a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening, and at evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And Yahweh will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Now, you listen to today's dispensational guys, and they'll basically say, we can't oppose the nation of Israel. And I'm not saying to oppose them. They're one of our allies. I've been a good ally at that. But I would note here, have you noticed the trouble that they continue to go through wherever they are? And now you know why. It's because God keeps his word. And their troubles legitimately stand as a sign, not only against their unbelief, but as a sign to us that God means what he says. I can't think of another group of human beings on planet Earth who have been more troubled, more persecuted, more trodden underfoot than the Jews. And of course, Christians, that's, but that's, that's, it's not a nation, okay? As an identifiable people group, and all of this is in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28. Don't sit there and tell me that the Jews today in Israel, they're the blessed of God. They're not. They are opposing Christ to this day and continuing to persist in the religion that the Pharisees invented. Okay, now hang on a second here. I'm going to check questions because I know that some of the stuff I'm saying is just going to, it's going to be, well, I have never seen this before. I know. Okay, okay, I get it. Okay. Our homemade kefir, a substitute for heaven, don't think about that. Okay, it's great. We take for granted that we, that, that we ever get well from a cold or gross uh, stuff from seed and actually grows and produces or anything that is a success or even has, uh, have rest. God is in charge of every bit of everything. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Exactly, Jody, that's the thing. 
And so when you know your Bible, you have a way of interpreting certain aspects of even current events. But you're going to note, um, you know, I, I am loathing this week. The reason I am loathing this week is because the expectation is, is that I'm going to get onto my YouTube channel and talk about how the war in Israel is a sign of Christ's imminent return. I'm not only am I not going to do that, I'm not going to even address it in a long form video. I'll do it in a short and say, this has nothing to do with the return of Christ. This has everything to do with Deuteronomy 28. Read the passage and you'll get it. No, it's not. <laughs> it is not going to go over well. Yeah. Cancel, cancel, cancel. Yeah. I can just see it. I'm going to really upset a bunch of people. Basically, just say, read Deuteronomy 28, the last half of it, and interpret what's happening there and the entire history of what's happened to uh, you know, genetic Israel you know, in, over the past two millennia. And now you understand what's going on. This is not a sign of Christ's imminent return. It's a sign of God's judgment. It's a fulfillment of his very words that you will never have any rest or even assurance of your own life. That's the right interpretation of what's going on here. And I defy anybody to quote a passage to the contrary because there are none. And again, what has happened to them is so insanely extraordinary that it stands out in human history. It legitimately does. Now, I am not saying that if you show kindness to people who are Jews, that's somehow wrong. No. In fact, as Christians, we must. We must treat them with kindness, love, with mercy, with respect, and pray for them, right? But pray primarily that God would grant them repentance the same way he's granted us repentance. Because are you any better than anybody? No, I'm not, right? So... All of that is like, again, bonus material, but uh, kind of cogent in what we're studying here. So you're going to note then in Ezekiel 5, and let me back up into the context again, because, um, you know, it's, um, it's important to keep the context, so I sometimes reread the same text over and over again. Ezekiel 5.1, you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, pass it over your head and your beard, then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. A third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part of it you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of the robe, of your robe. And these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire, burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all of the house of Israel. So thus says the Lord Yahweh. This is Jerusalem. I've set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her, for they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you, therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I, even I, am against you 
and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations, and because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds." That finds its fulfillment not in the lifetime of Ezekiel, but after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all of your detestable things and with all of your abominations, therefore I will withdraw my eye, my eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds with an unsheathed and, and will unsheathe the sword after them. So note, not only does he scatter them, but he's chasing them with an unsheathed sword. Thus shall my anger spend itself and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am Yahweh, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. Future tense here, spoken to Jews in exile. I will make you a desolation, an object of reproach among the nations. Tell me this hasn't been fulfilled and continues to be fulfilled for the last 2,000 years all the way up to today, right? You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning, a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and in fury with furious rebukes. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. Woof. Right? You sit there and go, ah, that's how to explain history. They are an object lesson for us to teach us to say, oh, I repent and I want to do God's commandments. That's the point. They are a living object lesson. God has made them that. Horrifying to consider, yet I cannot come up with a, a, a biblical text that says anything to the contrary. It's the only bit that makes sense of what happened to them and what continues to happen to them to this day. Why do so many people hate these people? Why are they so mistreated? Right? Ezekiel 6, judgment against idolatry. The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys. I would note that if God were having me prophesy here, there's nothing to prophesy to. <laughs> I prophesy to the empty flatness. <laughs> right? 
I just had to put that in there. Yeah, you know, I, I recently made a, a short trip to Canada to pick some people up from the airport and bring them back. And you know what? The, the vast flatness, it goes straight north all the way up into Canada, and it just keeps on. You know, there's like nothing to look at all the way up to Winnipeg. It's like, what is going on out here? You know? What was that? Mm-hmm. I'm aware. We are, by the way, Grand Forks, the coldest city in all of the United States. Lower 48. Okay. No, we do. Grand Forks holds it. You look it up. And, and there's only, in, in Alaska, there's only a couple of, of cities that are more cold than we are. So, so when you're feeling the bitterness of February and down in your bones and in your sinuses and stuff like this, Note that uh, we also stand as an example of God's judgment. <laughs> and if you misbehave, God will send you to American Siberia the way he did Rosebro. So, <laughs> I just had to throw that in there. All right. So he's having him prophesy to the mountains, to the valleys. And so here, so uh, behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you. I will destroy your high places your altars shall become desolate. Your incense altars shall be broken. I will cast down your slain before your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. I will scatter your bones around your altars. Terrifying when you think about it. The reason why he's prophesying against these mountains is because on every single little one of these hills and mountains, they set up high places to these false deities, right? Now they just make mega churches, but that's a different story. Okay, um, let's see. I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. I will scatter your bones around your altars. When, wherever you dwell, the cities shall be waste and the high places ruined so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, your works wiped out, and the slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am Yahweh. <laughs> kind of like too late. Wait, this all this destruction, that means that God, Yahweh's God, right, and you're dead. Okay, now let me check questions real quick before I get too far here. God's covenant with Israel is forever and unchangeable. Uh, I would note here, uh, Jacob in Malawi, so the Mosaic covenant is, is, is no longer in play, okay? Um, and so the, the, there, is, there is nobody who is keeping the Mosaic Covenant today. So the people who are genetic descendants of Abraham, who are living in the nation of Israel, they're not under any covenant with God at all, at least, you know, at least not the Mosaic Covenant. And maybe you can invoke the Abrahamic Covenant to some degree, but here's the issue. They don't have the same faith as Abraham. So they're, they're actually out of covenant, and as a result of it, uh, are not under his blessing. Uh, and they, they stand in defiance of the truth. So um, the church, then, is Israel. And that's really the whole point of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, is that true Israel are those who have the same faith as Abraham, and then we, we European uh, Gentiles in Jacob in Malawi, you're you're an African Gentile. You uh, you you are not descended from Abraham uh, genetically. Neither am I. 
but uh, we are grafted into Israel by faith in Christ. So we are counted as children of the promise um, because of our faith. And, and in fact, I can give you a text that kind of bears this out more succinctly. If we go to like Galatians 4, um, let me see if I can find the actual passage. Here we go. So, so Galatians 4, tell me you who desire to be under the law, the Mosaic covenant, do, do you not listen to the law? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave and one by the free. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. And that's the irony here. I want you to just think of what Paul's saying and, and like notice how he's absolutely inverting certain categories. When Israel got to Mount Sinai, were they in slavery? No, they had just been set free from slavery. And yet Paul says that the Mount Sinai is the place where people are born for slavery because the law doesn't actually set us free. The law condemns us. So she is Hagar. That Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. So note here, um, is earthly Jerusalem a place of freedom? No, the, it's the heavenly Jerusalem that is the place of freedom. The Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Note Galatians 4.28. You, you... Gentile Europeans, you Gentile Africans, you Gentile Gentiles, right? Y'all are children of the promise just like Isaac. Isaac wasn't born naturally because his mom couldn't bear because she was well past the age. She was pruning up like a raisin and had gone through menopause long before that. And, uh, and now she's bearing a child, right? That's because God promised that would be the case. In the same way, we are all children of the promise too. But what's the promise? That we would be descendants of Abraham by faith. Okay? So just as at the same time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So the idea then is, is that a right understanding of what takes place in Genesis regarding Ishmael and Isaac and Hagar and Sarah, that proper theological interpretation isn't given in the Old Testament, it's given in the New and if you read and you sit there and go, well, it's the genetic descendants of Abraham that are the blessed ones, <sighs> I would remind you it was the genetic descendants of Abraham who were worshiping Baal and who were the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel who were opposing uh, Elijah. And it was the descendants of Abraham who were the ones killing the prophets, right? Gen DNA has nothing it's faith. 
period. So that, that's the point, okay? So aren't we the church Israel now? So Jody, here's the thing. The church doesn't replace Israel, okay? And here's the reason why. Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus is Israel squished down to one human being. We are grafted into Christ, which means we are grafted into Israel. So here's the idea. We Gentiles are a bunch of wild olive branches that have been grafted, in a, grafted into the cultivated vine of Israel. So the church never replaces Israel. Instead, the church is grafted into Israel. Okay, so if you've ever heard somebody say, the church replaces Israel, no, that's not how this works. Again, read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you'll see. We are grafted into Israel. We Gentiles are branches that have been put in. So there's only, if you were to kind of think of it through all of human history then, there's only one tree of note, and that's the olive tree of Israel, and we were born outside of that tree and grafted into it. Okay, so mazel tov. God looked at me like, huh? <laughs> All right, I have to go. <laughs> if I go any longer, I'm going to be late. So we'll have to end here. All right. Peace to you, brothers and sisters. Lord willing, we'll see you next time.